Welcome to Safety Net, a patient safety podcast with news, trends, and ideas from CRICO, the insurance program for all of the Harvard Medical Institutions and their affiliates, bringing a data-driven approach to reducing medical error through clinical analysis of malpractice claims. On today's episode, we begin to look at the legal and ethical dynamics in healthcare behind conflicts over discrimination and harassment among colleagues and staff. I'm Tom Agello, Senior Editor here at CRICO, and I'm joined by three very special guests, starting with CRICO's Senior Vice President of Claims, Beth Cushing. Beth is an attorney who oversees CRICO's Claims Department, which is responsible for management and conflict resolution of liability claims for the Harvard Medical System. Thank you for being here, Beth. Great to be here, Tom. Thank you. Also joining us are two leaders of the movement to reduce these harms and occurrences in the Harvard medical system, Dr. Saray Parangi, Chief of Surgery for Newton Wellesley Hospital and Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the Department of Surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. And we are also joined by Lisa Damon, a partner at Seiforth Shaw LLP in Boston, who has worked extensively in employment discrimination law, including intervention projects led by Dr. Parangi at MGH. Thank you all for being here. Thanks, Tom. Thank you so much. Beth, the concerns over employment liabilities seem to have only grown over the past decade. They seem to have picked up momentum along with the Me Too movement and other kinds of social changes. The, uh, the healthcare industry is no exception. So what's been CRICO's approach to this risk as it evolves? And how does a malpractice insurance company make a difference besides just sort of reacting to lawsuits and defending claims? Great question, Tom. Thank you. Um, you are correct that while CRACO has been writing employment practices liability for over 30 years, we have had very little activity in that space over that time until about a decade or so ago when I think the entire country was experiencing an uptick in uh, sexual harassment claims, gender discrimination claims, um, particularly among healthcare employees, uh, including physicians. And that was a little bit new for us and for, I know, other academic medical institutions in the country. So we, of course, took note of the social climate and um, connected more deeply with our institutional partners similar to what we do on the medical malpractice side to see you know, what, what really are the root causes of these conflicts and was there anything that together we could start to address to mitigate those risks. Beth, what kinds of claims and allegations are we seeing? By and large, the cases are based on alleged race discrimination, gender discrimination, and sexual harassment and retaliation. Those would be the, you know, the big buckets that we see. There are other smaller areas that you know, we, we have some experience in, but that is the uh, majority of the claims in the employment practices area. As we looked at all of these topics, and of course we were very sensitive to the Me Too movement, and you know, we looked at all of what was happening socially and within our own institutions and had many conversations about what that really looks like in the Harvard community. And as it happens, we then connected with 
Saray Parangi, who was interested in this field for reasons that I'm sure she would love to tell us um, and had applied for a CRICO grant to explore this area and um, bring some of her knowledge and experience to sexual harassment in the surgical field. And so when I saw the grant come through, I just knew right away there would be great synergy with the work that we were trying to do. And um, I'll let her tell you how successful and wonderful that has been. And we were able to also uh, bring in Lisa Damon, who is really our key defense attorney in this space and advisor. And so, you know, it's just the perfect union for, for us. And I will say that surgery is the number one area where we see claims and conflicts historically and currently. So uh, we obviously had great interest in hearing from someone who has lived the experience and, and uh, continues to live in that space, what she and her colleagues thought might be worthy of attention and improvement. And uh, Saray, um, was there one thing that led you to this effort? Was there one experience? Was there one episode, one moment in time, or was this building? Um, I think um, this is definitely an experience that women physicians live all the time. But I think your, your question is a good one. There was kind of a moment. Um, one time, one of the presidents of the Association of Women Surgeons um, and I were sitting together chatting about how when someone makes a very discriminatory comment based on our gender, both of us are so dumbfounded, we usually don't know what to say. And we thought to ourselves in that discussion, if we both presidents of the Association of Women Surgeons with a certain stature, you know, professors at Harvard, et cetera, are dumbfounded and don't know what to say, why aren't we working together to train the next generation and ourselves and everyone around us to actually know, recognize the behaviors inappropriate and have some kind of strategy for response. And we thought about how in, in the medical world, we train for everything. We train for emergencies. We train how to put an airway in. We train how to give bad news, but we never train for this. So of course we're kind of dumbfounded. So that was sort of a, I'd say a light bulb moment for us where we said, well, no one else seems to, no one else is gonna work on it, why not us? And um, maybe you could give us a little brief outline of the project and what's gonna happen first. Okay, so the project that we're doing is basically named uh, Smart Appropriate Response Training, which is, you know, creating a role-playing training toolkit for residents in surgical departments um, to be able to address sexual harassment, gender discrimination, and gender-based microaggression. The why, why should we be interested in this, was a report from the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine in 2018 that basically said 50% of women medical students and women faculty are experiencing sexual harassment. And really um, what 
we found in our research is that one of the key factors that contributes to sexual harassment in the medical world is a culture of, a culture of tolerance. And we couldn't find in the literature really almost anything about how one should respond to sexual harassment or gender discrimination. What are the tactics? And what we found is usually people were either appeasing or avoiding the harasser, psychologically detaching themselves or trying to endure the situation or making up an excuse or at most maybe seeking social support. And they were afraid to do much more because of the high risk of retaliation that Beth talked about. And, and Lisa, so, it might be a good uh, time for you to tell us what you have found, not just in your extensive background, but that you've engaged in this project. But what has uh, been remarkable to you? Uh, many things. Uh, first of all, it's this is just an extraordinary initiative. I do a, a lot of work across the country with organizations that are grappling with these issues. Uh, and my hat's off to CRICO for supporting this and for uh, MGH and MGB to have this program. It's really something. Uh, it's incredibly powerful to have all of these voices um, who have been touched by this kind of activity, working together to empower others. Um, it's a unique opportunity, and I think resulting in some very, very, very powerful training. Um, it's, it's interesting because a lot of the training that is done in companies, as Sarah said, it's, it's don't do this and don't do that. But, but what we're doing here with this group is we're really trying to understand what's happening in their daily lives, real daily lives, and then what they can do at the time then and later to stop the conduct, to correct for it, to protect each other. And we're doing it in a group setting where there's a tremendous amount of support and empowerment around them. Um, it's it's really been a remarkable experience for me to be part of. Um, I think we will see coming out of this a new way to train uh, medical professionals um, that is much more impactful than the way they've been trained in other companies and organizations. Um, very, very interesting. And I think the, the other thing that we've really spent time on as part of this training is to tease out this issue between intent and impact, right? A lot of, of professionals of all kinds, including medical professionals, believe very clearly that if there's no intent, then there can't be any harassment or discrimination or retaliation, right? If I didn't mean it, I'm just being, I'm being friendly, I'm you know, trying to break the ice, I'm trying to be light and make a joke, there can't be anything wrong with that. And so a big piece of this learning is not only for the people who are, are teaching the facilitators, but also as part of the program to understand that it's really the impact. It's how those jokes or the teasing or the comments, how that lands for the people and how that then impacts their work. So it's it's been a remarkable experience. I'm really thrilled to be part of it. And as I said, really, um, I, I, Beth knows this, I just think Crico is really way out in front um, trying to, to make a difference. Lisa, in your experience uh, looking 
inside of the Harvard system and outside of the Harvard system, what are the main misconceptions that, that leaders and uh, others responsible for these environments, what, what kinds of misconceptions or misunderstandings do they have about these issues? I think that the biggest one is, is the intent versus impact one. I hear that all the time. You know, oh, so-and-so didn't mean it, right? That's just the way they are. Um, and that's the, the minute you hear that, you know that you've got a problem brewing. And so I think that's a big issue. Um, you know, the other issue is this, this concept you hear it a lot now of a, of a toxic or hostile workplace. Um, people feel as if their environment is hostile. And I think leaders, when they hear that, don't think about the legal implications of that. But a toxic environment, if it's toxic for people, that can lead to, to issues. Uh, another issue that we've, we grapple with across the country is managers not understanding that they're responsible for doing something and taking action. So there are a lot of people who see something, you know, bystanders, they don't do anything because they think it's not, may not be somebody they directly supervise. They may not feel as if they're far enough up in the organization. They may feel as if they don't, they don't know where to go and don't know what to do their inaction can cause liability on behalf of the organization. And so again, trying to empower people. And probably the last one I see all the time, and we've talked about it in this program, is people being afraid to report. Um, it's, it's, um, it's, it, this is a huge problem for all organizations because unless these issues are reported up to a level where action can be taken, very often they're not attended to and problems can grow. And so I think one of the things we've seen in this program and Crico has been very good about is making sure that all of our institutions and organizations have a reporting structure where people can report anonymously uh, as well as uh, in person if that's what they're comfortable with. But the anonymous reporting in a way that is confidential and reliable is very important to making this work for all of us. I'm glad you brought that up, Lisa, because it's such a critical point. And as you know, we have been looking at the reporting opportunities and MGB has a wonderful program that they're rolling out called Know the Line. It's really a great model for other institutions, I think, um, because needless to say, when we're defending these cases, down the road, all of these things are, are perfectly clear that people knew about the behavior. Uh, no one did anything about it. There are emails about it. You know, it's all well documented how um, unfortunate the circumstances were. And to be able to get to the problem sooner rather than later, right? Again, back to the theme of how do we identify these things? It is reporting. It is by vigilance and surveillance, and it is by education, right? So that people can um, be more cognizant of how these problems uh, land on other people. I would like to say that it takes people like you, Saray, who are willing to be champions within a very large organization that, you know, you just can't address every problem in every corner with one fell swoop. And so it takes champions, and I, I applaud you for taking this on. Um, it's it's so important, and and you know, trying to give this new generation a better future. 
Thanks, Beth. I think we're all learning together. And I think um, that's the sense I get what you just said from the group of facilitators that we're training is that everyone is very invested in learning how to train the next group and the next group. Because like we started, they've lived this experience. It wasn't great. They're, some of them are still quite traumatized by some of the experiences. And the common thread is they wanna help, you know, change this situation for future generations. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for groups that might wanna emulate these kind of programs, I think that is really critical mm -hmm. that the leadership be um, very much behind you when you're starting this kind of training. Um, but it's scary Absolutely. for them. Yeah. Now, where do we go from here then? Uh, uh, Saray, you've got the, the training program. You're going to be diving deep into that this year. Um, this issue is not going away by any stretch. Lisa, nationally, where do you see this whole issue going? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Is it getting different? Where do you see this headed? I think it's it's changing. Uh, many employers across the country have recognized the importance of training, and that's a good thing. So they're training their managers and their employees to understand what the law is in this area, and the law has evolved and shifted as society has changed. What I see now, though, is that there are more subtle forms, the issue of microaggressions, um, unconscious bias has become more and more relevant in workplaces as they grapple with toxic cultures, as they grapple with the importance of equity and inclusion. So the issues have changed. And because of that, I think the training needs to change. The preparation of managers needs to change. We need to look at things differently. And I think this program really is part of that next step. Well, this will be an ongoing discussion, no doubt. I'd like to thank all of our guests today, starting with Beth Cushing, CRICO's Senior Vice President of Claims. And thank you to Dr. Saray Parangi, Chief of Surgery for Newton-Wellesley Hospital and Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the Department of Surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. And thank you as well to Lisa Damon, partner at Seifarth Shaw LLP in Boston. I'm Tom Agello for SafetyNet. Thank you for listening to SafetyNet, a podcast of news, trends, and ideas from Crico in the Harvard Medical System. Find all of our podcasts at www.rmf.harvard.edu slash podcasts and subscribe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts, and then rate and review the show to help others find it too.